Well, Merry Christmas, you all. I know, not quite yet, but the four candles are lit. We're getting so close. And the passage that I'm preaching on today actually takes place after Jesus is born. So a little preview of what is to come this morning. Over the last three weeks, we've been looking at the different um, hymns uh, in the beginning of Luke in the birth narrative. And today we're looking at the fourth hymn. This is Simeon's song that we're looking at this morning. And at this point, um, Jesus is about 40 days old. So if you look at any of the young infants in car seats, Jesus was actually even a little bit younger than some of these little ones that we have here with us. And Mary and Joseph have taken him um, to Jerusalem, to the temple. This is something that devout Jews would have done um, in order to dedicate him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice at the temple. And it says that they offered two doves or two pigeons. And so we know from that that um, Joseph and Mary were among the poor in their society. If they had been more well-to-do, they would have offered um, a sheep or a goat, probably. So they arrive at the temple, and they're approached by an elderly man who they find out is actually a prophet. And this is Simeon. And Simeon has been waiting for the Savior of Israel. He has received a word from the Holy Spirit that he will not die before he gets to see Israel's Messiah. And Luke tells us that Simeon is, is, has been eagerly waiting. And we don't know how, but Simeon um, has been moved by the Spirit. He, he somehow knows to enter into the temple courts just as Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus enter the temple as well. And so I'm going to pick up reading in Luke chapter 2, verse 28. So Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then had been a widow for 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now, the song of Simeon echoes a lot of the same themes that we have heard over the last few weeks as we've looked at these other three songs of Mary and Zechariah and the angel. Um, Simeon's song, along with those others, proclaims and celebrates the arrival of God's Messiah, a divine comforter that's been waited for for generations, who has come to bring peace and to redeem his people. And redeeming is just a fancy way of saying that to set them free from slavery by paying a ransom for them. Redemption. 
But Luke's account of Simeon's song is different in one really powerful and significant way. The first three songs of Mary and Zechariah and the angel all celebrate the coming of Israel's Savior. They celebrate the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham's descendants. And they speak of the blessings to come as blessings for God's chosen people, the Jewish people. But Luke, the author of this account, is a Gentile. And as a Gentile, one thing that's important to him is clearly communicating that this Messiah that he has held in Jesus has come not simply for the Jews, but for all people, for Jews and for Gentiles. And so for this reason, Simeon's song is really the culmination, the climax of Luke's birth narrative. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to unpack this a little bit more. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts this morning to hear from you. What is it that you have for us in Simeon and Simeon's song? Lord, give us ears to hear. And thank you so much for this Messiah, for this Savior who has come not just for an isolated pocket of people in one portion of the world, but for all people, all nations, for us. We are so grateful, Lord. Amen. So my thesis for this morning is that we worship a God who has big arms. I think that's Randy's phrase. We worship a God who is radically inclusive. And I believe that we see that here in Simeon's song. Now many of us likely grew up um, seeing God as anything but inclusive. Church and Christianity for many may have felt like a list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts, things that you have to abide by in order to be in or to be out with God. Well, Simeon's song and the way that Luke recounts Simeon's song to us throws this to the wind. Because what we see here is a God who is incredibly inclusive. And there are three different things that I want to highlight that I think Luke does intentionally in his recounting of this song that points to the fact that God has big arms. So the first thing is the particular word that Simeon uses when he speaks about the salvation that has come in Jesus. The word that he uses here is not the most common word for salvation. In fact, the word that he uses only shows up about four other times in the New Testament. And what's noteworthy about this particular word is that it is the most inclusive way of saying salvation. In the other places where this word appears, the salvation is not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles. It's for sinners. It's for people that definitely do not have it all together. Salvation that he is referring to here is for this kind of people. And this is the same word that we see in Isaiah 40. And so Luke and Simeon are probably reflecting back and remembering Isaiah's words when he says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people, all flesh, will see it together. This inclusive language. Well, the second thing that I think points to this inclusive nature of God is also in Simeon's words in verse 32, where he spells out that Jesus is both a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So he's clear 
he doesn't want there to be any confusion, that Jesus is not only for salvation to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And so he puts it right out there. And again, Simeon is probably remembering Isaiah's words, which I think we used for one of the candle lightings in in chapter 60 of Isaiah. And I'm just going to read it because it's lovely. It says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations, all nations, will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So we can see with these references to Isaiah that were written hundreds of words before Jesus was born, that the idea of God being inclusive is not a new idea. It doesn't come into being when Luke writes his account. God, his heart, has been inclusive from the very beginning. We see it from day one in the Old Testament story. God has big arms. And the third thing that we see in Luke's account here of Simeon's song that points to the inclusive nature of God is the fact that Luke chooses to include Anna's story following Simeon's account. Now, including a female would not have added credence to the story in Luke's time. And so her mention is striking. First of all, she's a woman. Women had no place in the society at that time. Second, she's old. Most likely, she's over 100. And and third, she's a widow. All of these things would have given her no voice. And yet Luke includes her story in this story. And he does this intentionally. This is a tool, a literary tool, that he uses throughout his gospel of pairing male and female in different stories. We see it at the very beginning of the birth narrative when we have Zechariah and Elizabeth. We see it again with two different angelic annunciations to both Zechariah, a man, and then to Mary, a female. And then we see it here with these dual prophets, Simeon and Anna, male, female. And Luke's purpose here is to emphasize and to illustrate the inclusive nature of the God that has come. This is a God that is not simply for men, but for men and women, for slave and free, for rich and poor. This is a God who is for all people. So Anna's voice at the end of Simeon's song reminds us that God's kingdom is for all sorts of marginalized, disenfranchised people. Our God has big arms. Far from being an exclusive God, which we may have experienced and thought to be true as we were growing up, all are welcomed into this God's saving embrace through Jesus. Our God, who we didn't make room for, but who made room for us being born in a stable, is a God who, like William in the story earlier, always makes room for us. There's always room for one more. And we see this throughout the gospel story. Jesus made room for a Samaritan woman who was caught in adultery. He made room for tax collectors who were shunned by their communities. He made room for shepherds, the lowest, the poorest, the smelliest of society. He sent his angelic choir to them first 
And if we look back through the story of Scripture, he made room for moon worshipers, stutterers, murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, idolaters, tax collectors and fishermen, firstborn and lastborn, sons and daughters, men and women, young and old, slave and free, prisoners and prison guards. Our God is a God about making room. But our God doesn't push. He invites And then when he is invited in, he presses in. He draws near in love. And he doesn't ask us to get cleaned up first, to get our act together first. He simply says, come along with me, just as you are. God is not afraid of our brokenness. He's not turned off by the things that bring us shame, that make us feel guilt. In fact, God expects these things. We're human. He knows that. But he simply says, come along with me, and as we go, let me heal those places. Let's move together to a better place. And as Christ's followers, as people made in his image, we are also called to be people who make room, to be ambassadors in the world that are all about making room. We're invited to mirror Christ by engaging people who are quite different than us in love, to express genuine care and concern, and also in love to unsettle the status quo, to have eyes and ears on the lookout for those places of longing, of thirst, and then to humbly direct their attention to the source of the living water, not pressing, but offering. So who are these others that we are called to embrace? Well, it's going to be different for each one of us. But as I pondered this this week, some of the categories that came to my mind, people on the opposite side of the political spectrum, definitely the other that we are called to embrace in love, in compassion, to make room for. Those with different skin color than us, different economic status, Different generations or stages of life. We are called to make room for the other. I'm sure you can add some other categories there. Now this idea of inclusion is sexy right now, isn't it? It's kind of all the rage. If you're inclusive, then you are pretty cool today. But it's definitely not easy to live this out practically. For many of us, our tendency is to gravitate towards comfort, right? Towards people who are like us, who affirm, not challenge, our view of the world. And so welcoming the other into our midst, into our personal private spaces, introduces the possibility for dissonance, for conflict. And that is uncomfortable. So what we are being called to, this inclusion, is not easy. But I also need to say that the inclusivity being modeled by many in our country today misses the mark of what Christ calls the church to. Because much of what we see today, rather than true inclusion, is made possible by ignoring differences, by focusing on the thin list of things that we have in common, rather than striving to fully know and fully love those we are with in all of their uniqueness, in all of their distinction. 
yes, there are absolutely things that need to change in us as well as in the other. But the Spirit is the one at work in each one of us making deepening relationship with Jesus possible, making change possible. It's not our prudity. It's not our playing gatekeeper to the kingdom that is going to bring change. It's the Spirit that changes heart. And yes, the Spirit often chooses to use you and I to work through us, but not apart from relationship, not without authentic knowing. If we don't make room for the other, if we don't invite the other into our discussions about faith, into our community groups, into to our dinner tables, our conversations at work or in our kids' school hallways, then we make it way harder for the Spirit to work through us. But the Spirit will work, is working. But if we, the church, do not make room for the other, if we do not commit to engaging in relationship, then the Spirit is going to find other ways, other means to go about his work. And we are going to find ourselves increasingly marginalized and irrelevant. William invites the bear into the warmth of his home while he is still a bear. And the raccoon and the chipmunk and the hedgehog and the badger. Maybe tomorrow he will broach the subject of a bath. But to start off, he says, just come in. Have some covers. Tomorrow I'm going to make waffles. This is what we are invited into. This radical inclusion. This invitation to be a part of our lives just as you are. Trusting that through relationship, the spirit, the spirit will be at work softening, changing hearts, drawing people to himself.